X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon. It's Thursday, March 25th. Today, back in the day, on March 25th, 1807, the Slave Trade Act was passed in the UK. Officially known as the Act for the Abolition of the Slave Trade, the parliamentary bill prohibited slavery in the British Empire. The act created fines for those trafficking people across the ocean, up to 100 pounds per enslaved person. This unexpectedly led to certain captains dumping captives overboard when they would see a British naval ship approaching. However, it also allowed for lawmakers to create specific squadrons that would patrol the coast of West Africa. The Royal Navy announced that any ships found carrying human beings for trafficking purposes would be treated as pirates. While it didn't end slavery completely, it did allow for Britain to pressure other countries into doing the same. Today, back in the day on March 25, 1911, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire killed 146 people in New York City's Greenwich Village. It was the deadliest industrial fire in New York City and one of the deadliest in U.S. history. Most of the victims were recent immigrant women of Jewish or Italian descent between the ages of 14 and 23. The fire likely started when a discarded cigarette butt was tossed into a pile of leftover cloth cuttings. The doors to the stairwells were locked, as was common practice at the time to prevent workers from taking unauthorized breaks. This led to at least 62 people jumping to their death from the burning building, unable to escape. As a direct result of the fire, there was improved legislation for factory safety standards and increased recognition of the strength and importance of labor unions. And today, back in the day, on March 25, 1993, the Scotts Mills earthquake, a.k.a. the Spring Break quake, rocked Oregon. The 5.6 magnitude quake hit at 5.34 in the morning. It emanated from the epicenter of the town of Scotts Mills, about 35 miles south of Portland. The earthquake was felt as far north as Seattle and as far south as Roseburg. It also hit all the way to the coast at Lincoln City and all the way inland to Bend. After shocks as strong as 3.2 were felt, mostly in the first hour following the event. There was minimal damage reported, with the most notable coming at the state capitol building in Salem. It was the largest quake to hit the Pacific Northwest since 1991. For today's episode, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with Joanne Jewell from Street Roots. X-Ray. First up, it's time for today's quick six local rundown. A new audit finds that 90 COVID-related deaths in long-term care facilities could have been prevented with more efficient bureaucracy. The Department of Human Services and the Oregon Health Authority took weeks to respond to an outbreak at a Portland nursing home. The audit found that after complaints were filed about the home health care at Foster Creek, the state worked to put together a response team, then waited three weeks to take action. The Oregonian reported that by the time the facility had been evacuated, it was responsible for one in four COVID-related deaths in Oregon. That statistic follows a pattern in the rest of the state as half of our COVID-related deaths are tied to care facilities. And that's as opposed to one-third nationally. 
The audit read, quote, the delay is an indication of the lack of advanced preparation for the pandemic and a hesitancy to take proactive actions in a crucial case. In response to the finding, auditors cited what actions have since been taken to curb outbreaks in long-term care facilities. This includes the opening of COVID-19 recovery units, enacting a statewide mandate that senior staff get tested monthly, and inspections to check that facilities were following infection control practices. And now it's time for your daily dose of data. On Wednesday, the Oregon Health Authority confirmed 379 new cases and one new COVID-related death. To date, 2,368 Oregonians have died from the virus. Additionally, 102 people are hospitalized with COVID. As of Tuesday, 20 Oregon counties were able to advance into the next phase of vaccinations. That would be Phase 1B Group 6, which consists of migrant and seasonal farm workers, seafood, agricultural and food processing workers, people living in low-income facilities, people experiencing homelessness, people displaced by wildfires, wildland firefighters, and those who are pregnant over 16. And of course, people 45 and over with at least one underlying condition. Of the 20 counties moving on, they include Marion, Deschutes, and Polk counties. None of the Portland metro area has advanced into the next stage. The state is offering waivers for vaccine eligibility county by county in order to ensure the new vaccine timeline, which which opens vaccinations to the public on May 1st, and that will stay on course. Oregon lawmakers are considering a bill to ease some immediate effects of the pandemic on employers. Its goal? To allow some employers to defer a portion of their unemployment payroll taxes until 2022. Because payroll taxes are tied to layoff rates, some employers are expecting to owe significantly more after being forced to let many workers go in 2020. The bill, which has bipartisan support, was drafted with input from the Oregon Employment Department. Another key component of the bill is to base employers' experience ratings on 2020 rates for the next three years. An experience rating compares an individual employer's losses to those of other similar employers. Usually, the more employees you lay off, the more you pay in tax rates. However, COVID has affected each employer differently. By maintaining 2020 rates, some of this tax burden on employers would be softened for this three-year period of time. As David Gerstenfeld, the acting director of the Oregon Employment Department, said, quote, This bill is a recognition that the pandemic was not a typical situation. House Bill 3389 is scheduled to be discussed this afternoon by the House Rules Committee. Portlanders are divided over the possibility of city parks being used as temporary homes. Portland is currently working on an overhaul of the city's zoning code. Part of this effort is the Shelter Housing Continuum, a plan designed by the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability. An aspect of this plan includes a measure to allow the creation of temporary shelters in any open space in Portland. This includes parks, wetlands, and trails. Shelters would need city approval before being constructed and would have to be overseen by a public or nonprofit agency. However, an opposition effort is being mounted by former members of city council and past directors of the Portland Parks and Rec Department. 
after former Councilwoman Amanda Fritz testified against the specific measure to allow temporary shelter in Portland Parks, all five city commissioners issued a joint statement. In it, they agreed to discuss a way to rewrite the code change. Mayor Ted Wheeler has also weighed in, saying the intention is not to have shelters in natural areas. Opponents feel moving forward with this could cause irreparable damage to city parks and that if zoning code is changed, it could be difficult to reverse. Meanwhile, proponents see lives at risk and open spaces like parks inhibited by the blanket ban, which limits the ability to respond. Though it has yet to be resolved, the contentious line is just one sentence in the shelter housing continuum plan. When it comes to most things in the larger plan, housing advocates appear to be mostly in agreement with park advocates. The U.S. Department of Justice has asked Portland police for a plan to report and review officers' use of force, but the city will not oblige. Though the DOJ and PPB have been in communication for weeks, things came to a head in a public meeting Tuesday night. The city contends such a plan to monitor use of force is not required under its 2014 court-approved settlement agreement on police reforms with the Justice Department. The settlement stemmed from a federal investigation that determined Portland officers used excessive force against people with mental illness. And last month, the Justice Department found that the PPB did not meet four key reforms. Those failures were inappropriate use and management of force during social justice protests last year, inadequate training, insufficient police oversight, and neglecting a requirement to adequately share an annual police bureau report with the public. A spokesperson for PPB said the city has never had to provide the Justice Department with a plan in the past. Much of this comes in the wake of social justice protests last year in which Portland police used force more than 6,000 times. Officers rarely completed required reports after using force. Feds see this as a failure of the Bureau to abide by the 2014 settlement, whereas the city contends these were unforeseeable circumstances that stemmed not from neglect, but the impossibility of success with such a small team. Currently, they're at a stalemate. However, if the Justice Department determines that the city has failed to fully comply with the 2014 settlement agreement, they could seek a judge to enforce compliance. And finally, some good news. As we welcome spring, Portland is playing host to a number of art shows from both emerging and well-established artists. Perhaps the most recognizable name is Ansel Adams. A show organized by the Museum of Fine Arts Boston is making its only West Coast stop at the Portland Art Museum. Adams is known for his expansive landscape photographs of the American West, and over 100 of his works will be shown alongside other artists tackling the same subject. Portland Art Museum curator Julia Dolan will also be including works by Native American and Black photographers from the museum's collection in the exhibit. This show will run from May 5th to August 1st. Another must-see is Georgina Rescala's show, Inventing the Truth. Upon discovering a box of her grandparents' photographs, Rescala was inspired to create this project. 
Through manipulating photographs and distorting the actual linen they are printed on, Rescala creates distorted images that evolve far beyond the original subject captured. You can see her work on view at PDX Contemporary Art from May 5th to the 29th. And one more recommendation, Johnny Chapman's I Forgot Where We Were. Chapman blends expansive landscapes with the intimacy of self-portraiture to create uncanny black and white compositions that provoke reflection. This particular series encourages the audience to question who has historically occupied the scenes in which he sets himself. His show will run from April 1st to May 29th at the Blue Sky Gallery. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-ray. Street Roots has published an editorial reigniting the push for Portland Street Response, a non-police first responder program. Here is Joanne Jewell, executive editor, with more. You are listening to X-Ray in the Morning with myself, Julia Oppenheimer, and Andy Lindbergh. I'm joined now by Joanne Zuhl of Street Roots. Uh, black activists and organizations have advocated for reparations, financial, social, and political restitution for the African-American community for decades. Considering this country's long, multi-layered history of racist uh, violence and exclusion, reparations as a project would require deliberate and substantial action to counter that history's um, enduring legacy in America's fundamental institutions. This year, the National African American Reparations Commission is leading the charge for a federal bill that would research and develop a plan for reparations. This week's edition of Street Roots features an interview with Dr. Ron Daniels from the NAARC. Here to talk with us about that interview and possible the possibility of reparations is Joanne Zuhl. Good morning, Joanne. Good morning. So uh, that was a very long intro, but why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, the NAARC? Right. Well, the NAARC uh, and uh, other groups uh, advocating for reparations um, have been working on this for decades. Um, We feel or they feel that they are now at a point where it's coming to a head and that there's a real potential for something something to happen right now. And the or at least in the near future. And the NAARC has uh, uh, put together a 10-point plan on what they see as what reparations would actually mean. And, uh, you know, I think for a lot of people, there's just kind of an instant, okay, reparations, the first thing they think of is, you know, a a payment, a cash payment or some financial Mm -hmm. compensation for um, past suffering. But this uh, reparations that we're talking about here from the NAARC is much more comprehensive, goes into much more detail. It doesn't just look at, uh, certainly there is slavery that was the, you know, quote-unquote original sin to all of this from 400 years ago. Um, but they're looking at, you know, a whole history of injustices from the Homestead Act, for example, which was a land-grant program that was available to all kinds of people except those who were black. There's uh, housing authority policies that encouraged home ownership and wealth accumulations, but not for black people. Mm-hmm. There was the GI Bill, which was awarded to whites and not blacks. On and on, we have modern, you know, in, within recent decades, redlining. Today, gentrification. We have criminal justice issues. All of these things continue onward. So when we're talking about reparations, 
they're really talking about a much more comprehensive issue. So it's not just about a paycheck. It is certainly not just about a paycheck. In fact, that is almost the most uh, the smallest element that would be included and is not even core to this. Yeah, we were talking earlier this morning about um, a new bill that just passed in Evanston or a new law in Evanston, Illinois, um, providing reparations of up to $25,000 towards housing for people. Um, but there's not that much money in it. There's only enough grants for 16 people. Um, what kind of what kind of how, what kind of funding are we talking about for this? Well, that's that's the thing. That's why we're looking at, or I should I, not not we, but the the National African American Reparations Commission and other groups are really focusing that this is a national, this is a federal level issue because of the level of um, steps that need to be taken. So, while uh, Dr. Daniels does. Uh, you know, support and speak highly of what's happened in Evanston and other communities looking at localized reparations. He really emphasizes that this has to be a federal initiative. And so in their 10-point plan for reparations, they are looking at big-picture issues. These are social, cultural, and community development items. This is education. This is economic development. This is housing, uh, criminal justice reform media development. They, they uh, are looking for support for a national nonprofit, non-commercial newspaper, radio, and television network exclusive for cultural education, economic business, and civic engagement for black America. So it's almost like a black NPR, as it were. Mm. So they're looking at these comprehensive ideas that will take national support. And it certainly is, you know, could be looked upon as modeled as to what the federal government has done for white America for centuries. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the N- NAARC helped craft a bill, which is H.R. 40. What would that bill do? So this is a, a, a resolution that would address the injustice and the inhumanity of slavery uh, and establish a commission to study and consider a national apology, but even more important, uh, create this uh, uh, a long-term look at what really can be done and what should be done. Um, so it's both, again, not just looking at an apology, looking at just the past, but looking at ongoing racial and economic discrimination against African Americans uh, and at the end to present these recommendations to Congress for action. Um, among the things it will look at, uh, you know, both mental health issues, both economic issues, uh, wealth development, um, and how these injuries resulting from these matters can be reversed, um, how they can look at policies that can actually correct the problems and reverse the injuries that have been done. Um, they are optimistic. This uh, resolution has existed in one form or another for a couple of years now, uh, but they really feel that there's a lot of uh, movement behind it right now. Um, it's been what they call a study bill and that it's been used to um, think about how reparations or how this might become something bigger and to go around the country and study this issue. And now they really see it as a practical um, piece of legislation that could could come through given the support among uh, Democratic uh, con- congr- excuse me, Congress members mm-hmm. um, currently in office. So what kind of support does a bill like this need uh, in order to like be taken up on the House floor? 
Well, it has to clear the Judiciary Committee right now, which is where it is. And uh, again, NAARC is optimistic that there is support there among the committee members um, and then would go to the full Congress for uh, full House and then full Senate for for a vote. Um, uh, so, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, I make no visions. <laughs> no, I don't promise anything on what's going to come out of Congress these days, but uh, right. uh, NARC is quite optimistic about it, and it would be groundbreaking to have at the federal level um, this kind of an initiative move forward and have something done about it. Yeah, are there, um, do you know about, is there any reparations talk being done locally? I know you said they th- they they want to do it on a national scale, but I've heard about the potential of something in Oregon. Um, nothing that has gotten any traction that I'm aware of right now. Again, it's, it's, you know, there's what's really meaningful reparations and what is, um, taking, you know, what, what's meaningful and what's not meaningful, I guess is probably where a lot of people are looking at this and, um, it may be all well and fine for local governments to do this and not necessarily a bad thing, but really the, the, uh, the brass ring is getting it at the national level. How might we measure the success of a reparations program? Well, you know, I think that's a work in progress, according to Dr. Daniels. We'll just have to um, see how it moves forward, but it's a, a matter of putting these foundations in place. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he quotes Martin Luther King, actually, that... Uh, when we get there, we'll know, you know, and um, it'll be, uh, there's really no clear-cut answer. I mean, these right. are all, this is humanity. It changes. It changes <laughs> all the time. Yes. Truer words. Uh, Joanne, can you tell us about some of the other articles in the paper this week? Sure. We have, uh, you know, a breaking, st- well, a breaking story, but a, a bit of news that's a, a little unsettling that um, there is, a corrections office, a corrections officer at Coffee Creek Correctional Facility in Wilsonville, that is still working despite having felony charges for domestic violence against him. Oh um, Alex Doran was indicted in Polk County Circuit Court on felony charges of unlawful use of a weapon and coercion, both constituting domestic violence um, and on a misdemeanor menacing charge. And just to charge and just to remind folks, this is uh, a woman's prison and he is in a position of power over women so we had quite a few questions for the Department of Corrections um, from their viewpoint these are allegations and he has stayed on the job so uh, we'll see what happens Wow that is uh, pretty intense <laughs> so uh, go out there pick up a street roots from your local vendor I've noticed a lot of vendors um, with all the outdoor dining I've been seeing a lot of vendors around town selling to people outdoor dining and I think it is it is refreshing to have vendors back out there selling the paper. No one is more excited about it than they are. Uh, they're just they're just pleased. I mean, the, the reopening of everything is you know slow, steady, uh, which uh, as it should be. But vendors are just so happy about it. So please support your vendors. They've been waiting a long time to see you. So absolutely, Joanne. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll see you next week or soon. Right. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks to Joanne for joining The Local. And thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. Thank you for subscribing and giving us a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. We're going to talk to you again tomorrow, and we look forward to it.
X-Ray.